Where we're going today, it's going to sound a little familiar for YAC students. Um, there is new material, so don't fret. Um, because we did cover these, uh, I'm going over a series called 2020 with our students called Seeing the World Clearly, and we discussed these three lies in the fall. Um, and we're going to shorten it down to um, a 45-minute lesson on all three of them um, and kind of just hit those. So I just want you to be aware that this is the culture they're growing up in, and this is the outcome of this sort of safetyism that we've dealt with, this lack of risk, um, this individualism slash consumerism. Like it all kind of boils together in these three lies. Um, but before we get started there, let me pray, and then I want to give you two resources based on last week's discussion. I apologize. My voice is slowly going. It'll be gone by Yak tonight, I'm sure. So um, if I sound a little bit funky, that's why. So back over with me. Father God, um, one, I ask for power for my voice, uh, that you would sustain it. And uh, secondly, I ask for um, the Spirit to be here. Uh, Lord, as we uh, look at the issues of culture and in the, uh, in the next two weeks, Look at the ways that we can address it um, and to be the church in the midst of it. In your son's name, amen. Um, the first book I would highly suggest is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Um, you know, Oprah suggests it, which uh, if you follow that theologian. Um, but it really is it really is a good book. She's done, she spent a decade um, uh, studying shame and vulnerability. Um, so if you want to understand those concepts, um, everyone I... Everywhere I read in regards to empathy, shame, and vulnerability, they all quote her. So my assumption is she's probably the America's leading expert on it, if not the world's. Um, so this is her initial, initial book. It really is good. Um, I, I don't know her, her spiritual condition. She doesn't refer to it. Um, I, but all I know is that she does pray with her kids every night at a meal. She mentioned that one time. Um, so um, I don't know if she's a believer, but it is a great book. If you want me to email you these or text you these later so you're not running to write them down. Know that I can do that. I am a millennial, but I'm able to use a cell phone. So um, The next one um, has an awful picture because, well, pixels. And um, it's called Shame Interrupted by Ed Welch. Um, this is, he's from CCEF, which is a counseling ministry um, of the church. Um, if you want to understand shame in ways that we can address it, both in your own home and in the church, uh, this is a great book. It's pretty thin. Um, I think it's like 150 to 200 pages, so it's not a dissertation. Um, but it is kind of a good starter. So these are two books I would suggest to pick up. Um, Shame Interrupted goes on sale for like 99 cents on Kindle, like every six months. So keep an eye on that. I scored Burkhoff's Systematic for 99 cents this week on Kindle. Gosh, I love my Kindle. Um, I was like, yes. Um, so... This is about where we're going to start. Don't recognize not one person. That's good. Um, I didn't want to break any laws, so I got pictures that were um, non-copyrighted. Um, so today we're going to look at the macro culture. We looked at the individual iGen through micro last week, um, saw that the tool of technology has increased shame and has led to some pretty detrimental effects when it comes to connection, development, and independence. Um, so we talk about that in micro, but what happens when you clump all these people together, right? Like what happens when they're suddenly viewed as a whole? Um, what happens when you add a video-based culture where celebrities are the basis of morality? And I say that not like just as throwing it out there, but 60% of teenagers agreed with this according to a recent study that celebrities were the basis of morality. 
Um, and not heroes. This is interesting. Not firemen, police officers, soldiers, doctors. This is the first generation where elementary school students are more likely to desire a job as a celebrity, namely, you know, self-promotion industry, than in the service industry, like teacher, doctor, fireman, etc. So this is happening at the elementary school level, too, where they, they'd rather view it that way. Um, so what happens when you deal with iGen as a whole? Um, so let me say two notes to begin with. I just need to remind you, first, this isn't all iGen. There are outliers to every generation, okay? So just because I'm saying this doesn't mean that your children believe these three lies or any of the, these lies. Um, but they do encompass the culture as a whole. So you need to understand the kind of world that we're in. Um, the, it, what's been really interesting, and you see this in, in culture shifts, right? Um, the response to these type of lies has been super strong um, by... Um, really, some in the Christian community, but there's a lot in the non-Christian community that address these things really head on. Um, so, um, so it is really interesting. If you want questions on that, I think you know there was a great article. Uh, Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know his book, but he's probably developed probably the best natural theology on society. Um, of our generation, and, and it's all in response to these type of things that we'll be discussing about today. So if you want to see the opposite end of the spectrum, it's kind of knocking at the wall, that's it. Um, the second thing I want you to note is that this is not um, iGen's fault, right? Um, I think we're quick to make fun of them um, on our social media platforms. Um, but this is the culture they've been raised in, so they're simply the outcome of it, right? I, I, we use this analogy a lot in youth ministry as I talk to other youth ministers, but it's called the fishbowl analogy, right? Like, we're trying to deal with the fish as youth pastors, but until we understand the fishbowl, namely the home that they grow up in, we don't really have a way of addressing um, them as individuals. So we have to understand, okay, what type of environment are you in? Because I only get you for like an hour and a half, maybe three hours a week, so I can address you as a person, but if you go right back into a fishbowl that is believes these three lies, then um, well, I just do a lot more praying, right? Um, so we're going to address three lies today. Um, the last lie we'll address as a um, subject. I'll try to. We're going to fly through these. Um, the three lies the culture believes are these: what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Always trust your emotions, and then life is a battle between good people and evil people. Um, so those are the three things. So, um, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Um, So at a parents' meeting for a preschool, the administration was going over the list for uh, banned substances, right? The most important rule discussed based on the time spent on the banned substances at this preschool was that no nuts. That was the most important rule. They spent the most time. Um, Greg Lukanoff continues in his book, Coddling of the American Mind. Because of the risk of children with peanut allergies, there is absolutely, absolute prohibition on bringing anything containing nuts into the building. Of course, peanuts are legumes, not nuts, but some kind of allergies to tree nuts. Kids have allergies to tree nuts, too. So along with peanuts and peanut butter, all nuts and nut product products were banned. And to be extra safe, the school also banned anything produced in a factory that processes nuts. So many kinds of dried fruit and other snacks were prohibited, too. Finally, one of the parents asked one of the obvious questions at this preschool meeting. Right? It's a small preschool. It's got less than 100 kids. He said this, is anyone's kid allergic to nuts? <laughs> 
And if there isn't, maybe we can loosen up on this list, right? Well, the administration was clearly annoyed and told no parents to respond to the question, right? Um, because she said, the administration, don't put anyone on the spot, don't make any parent feel uncomfortable, regardless of whether anyone in the class has affected these are the school, rules of the school, right? So we, we shoot down dialogue with these things and, and notice her leading into, we want to make sure everyone's comfortable and we want to make sure, like, that's the leading thing that we're teaching. This is the administration of the people that are uh, raising preschoolers. So um, you can't blame the school for being cautious, though. Um, however, there is something you should know about the peanut allergy phenomenon. In the mid-1990s, only four in a thousand kids had a peanut allergy. Okay? So four in a thousand. So in a preschool of 100 students, it was quite possible that it just didn't exist. Um, by, but by 2008, using the exact same survey, the same measures, the number had jumped to 14 out of every 1,000. It had tripled, right? Um, which means at least one kid probably had a peanut allergy. So why the jump? What happened? Um, the response to the existence of the peanut allergy, think about it, is compassion, right? Kids are vulnerable. We must protect them at all costs. But little did compassion and power, knowing that compassion can also compound a problem. Um, in February 2015, an authoritative study was published. This is the LEAP study, learning early about peanut allergy. I'm excited that they came up with a um, working. I love good acronyms, right? It's the inner Baptist in me. Um, so the study was based on the hypothesis that regular eating of peanuts contained products when started during infancy will elicit a protective immune response instead of an allergic immune response. That's the hypothesis, right? So 640 pairs of parents were recruited for the study that had newborns that were a high risk of developing a peanut allergy. Half were told to follow the standard advice, avoid all peanut allergies at all costs, right? The other half were given a snack of peanut butter and puffed corn and told their kids to eat it three times a week. When the kids turned five years old, they tested the kids for peanut allergies. At this point, I'm sure you want to know what happens. Among the children who had been protected from peanuts, 17% had developed a peanut allergy. And those who had been deliberately exposed, only 3% had developed the peanut allergy. And one of the researchers said in an interview, for decades, allergists have been recommending that young infants avoid consuming allergic foods such as peanut to prevent food allergies. Our findings suggest the advice was incorrect and may have contributed to the rise in the peanut and other food allergies. And if you think about, if you, if you study any of this like uh, anthropology stuff, they have something called the hygiene hypothesis, and it's simply this. Um, the more advanced you are as a country, the more allergies you have. So if you go to third world Ghana, they have much fewer allergies than we do because their kids literally eat mud, right? Um, <laughs> So, well, what does this have to do with the lie of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker? Um, and there's a link uh, given by the developmental psychologist Allison Gopnik. Thanks to hygiene, antibiotics, and too little outdoor play, children don't get exposed to microbes as they once did. This may lead them to develop immune systems that have overreacted to substances that aren't actually threatening, causing allergies. And in the same way, think about it this way. By shielding children from every possible risk, we may lead them to react with exaggerated fear to situations that aren't risky at all and isolate them from the adult skills that they will one day have to master. iGen is known for concepts like trigger phrases, safe spaces, and emotional trauma. Those are mostly new terms, right? And like the peanut butter problem exasperated in the 1990s for wanting to protect our kids, it's having a negative effect on the outcome. Um, and we have a modern obsession uh, from keeping adolescents safe, right? Like it's all about making sure that they're protected. Um, 
Uh, not only that, but it is not only protecting adolescents, but protecting them from feeling unsafe. Do you see the jump there? Mm-hmm. Difference from safety, just making sure they feel unsafe. And we believe one of the several co- this is one of the several causes of the rapid rise in adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide. Right? Unfortunately, we are now seeing scientific fallout of it as we study the culture. And you are right smack dab in the middle of it. Okay? Even when I was in high school 15 years ago, we didn't have these type of phrases. Um, we didn't have safe spaces, emotional trauma, or trigger phrases. These are all new concepts. Um, the lie is spelled out plenty in this, right? If you experience a trigger word or an unsafe idea, or emotionally hurt, it can have long-term and negative effect on your life. That's the lie spelled out, right? And that's true, but sometimes, okay? But removing these same ideas can also have a long-term effect on your life, namely not knowing how to deal with it when it happens, okay? Um, so let's take a look at safe spaces. So this is even becoming more popular at high school level, um, as it trickles down from universities. If you hold a controversial opinion, you can't support it publicly. Certain T-shirts that states one's opinion, even if it's the majority opinion, can do emotional trauma, right? Um, and think about it this way. That's a new word in the English vernacular, right? Like, we didn't have emotional trauma before. Um, it's called concept creep. That's what we refer to it um, in psychology. And so trauma used to mean, according to the scientific literature, this, to describe a physical agent causing physical damage, That's what trauma was. Now it has morphed into this. Think about it. Experience by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful with lasting adverse effects on the individual's function and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Like, look how we've expanded the concept to encompass so much more. So, and this is what is terrifying, right? The shift has moved from something very objective, like there's a cut on my arm, I am bruised on the face, right, to something very subjective, namely, my feelings are hurt. Now, anytime students feel a negative emotion, they can suddenly label it as emotional trauma, and no one can disagree with them, because to disagree with them is to actually commit emotional trauma against that person. Oh, my. Right? You can't say, your feelings might be wrong here. So this was played out at Brown University when they had a debater, a debate on whether America really was a rape culture. So if truth is absolute and found in reality, then you get to have the discussion, right? One speaker at the debate had the position of no, because that's how debates work. You have a yes and you never know, right? Um, but unfortunately, um, she believed, this was her opinion, that contrasting the United States um, in which rape is endemic and tolerated um, with, for example, parts of Afghanistan where, I mean, you could list women are married against their will, they're murdered for men's honor, they're raped, and when they're raped, they're arrested for it, and then they're shunned by their family afterwards. Like, to her, that's rape culture. That was her statement. Um, But to do that, right, that offended students at Brown University to hold that opinion. So they tried to get her disinvited to the debate, okay, Now, yay for Brown, right? Um, Brown said, no, she still gets to come. Awesome. Um, But to protect their peers from such damage, that's their word in the letter to Brown administration, um, they set up a talk separate at the same time 
that students could attend that only addressed the one side of the issue. Okay, so you don't have to hear both sides. And second, I mean, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Okay, they uh, they created a safe. I'm gonna laugh. I apologize. They created a safe. This is the third time I've taught this, and it's still funny. They created a safe space where anyone who felt triggered could recuperate and get help. So the room was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, and videos of frolicking puppies. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. As well, as well as students and staff members purportedly trained to deal with emotional trauma. Like, do you see? Check where your kids are going to school, right? Because um, this is a lot of universities. This is not, like, just Brown. So here's the sad part, okay? We know from the psychological data that helping people overcome emotional problems is not by removing the problem completely. We know that. We've known that for decades on the psych literature, right? Um, like the peanut allergy example, helping someone overcome an emotional problem is showing that to them in small doses to helping them better deal with it. Take a fear of spider or heights, right? If you have that fear and you go to therapy for it, take the, I don't, I don't want to talk about the height one, okay? But like the, for the spider one, because I'm not scared of spiders, um, they'll introduce larger and larger spiders to be in the room with you and closer and closer so that you can learn to deal with the uh, fear that you have, right? Um, but no, we're not going to do that. Um, avoiding triggers, this is interesting, is a symptom of post-traumatic disorder, not a treatment for it. And we know this, but college administrations, uh, some of it because they feel financially tied, I'm paying you $40,000, you better take care of my kid and give them a degree. Um, and they, they enhance it and say, no, that's fine. Um, so safety is not always the best policy, okay? A culture that allows the concept of safety creep to creep so far that it equates emotional discomfort with physical danger is a culture that encourages people to systematically protect one another from the very experiences embedded in daily life that they need in order to become strong and healthy. Okay? And let's just be real. IGEN did not grow up in a strong culture. Um, they are in one that is dominated by feelings, and feelings are subjected by their very nature. More importantly, feelings can be wrong, which leads to the next lie. So I want you to know all these lies kind of play off each other. So the more you understand each lie, you'll see how it's kind of you see how they keep it. The second lie is this: always trust your emotions, right? Um, We are going through lies the culture tells us, and the second lie that the culture has shoved down our throat is this, always trust our emotions. And we repackage this concept this way. Follow your heart. Trust your instincts. Go with your gut feeling. And there are some, like, there are some things that your gut feeling should, like, give you clues, right? Like, there's, I don't want to say those things and you'd be like, no, we should never trust our gut. No, sometimes, like, okay, this person's creepy and like they're, they're invading my personal space. I might need to step back and call a friend, right? Like there are a lot of times where gut feeling works, but if we're only told that, if we're told that that's the only thing that's true or that is the basis of truth, um, well, then we're going to get into a problem. I had a good friend. Um, uh, I'm not going to say his name because it's on a podcast and, uh, maybe one day he'll listen to this. Right. And he's from Germany. Right. Um, and he would just, he had no concept of American personal space bubbles, right? When he would talk to me, he's here. 
And just, I mean, the first couple times I interacted with them just freaked me out, right? How are you? I mean, just right here. And so my gut feeling was like, this is uncomfortable. I don't know how to deal with that. But then I had to be like, okay, I was trained to view other variables. What culture is he from? What's, what is he like in other relationships? You know, it, I didn't just trust my gut where I'd be like, okay, this guy has no concept of personal space. Um, so while, again, this is good advice, the Bible tells us um, that uh, we should not trust our hearts, right? Um, the heart is deceitful above all else, Jeremiah 17, 9. No one seeks God, no, not one, Romans three ten. Hope is not our natural tongue, right? Um, so often our hearts distort reality, deprive us of insight, and needlessly damage our relationships. I, I mean, I've been in youth ministry for, gosh, I mean, almost 15 years now at some level, and the number of students where I have to counsel through stuff where it's just, it's, it's an emotional reaction, not based in reality, right? This happens a lot. This happens with adults too. Okay. So teenagers in the room, if you're like, Oh, it's just picking on us. No, no, this happens with adults too. Right. Um, and unfortunately we know this from our experience, especially the else in the room, our natural negative emotions and thoughts play off each other, right? Like, I use this joke all the time, and, and I might be a little weird, but I always talk about, like, the, the AM radio station that's playing in my head, right? Like, with three guys that are always talking to each other. It's like sports talks radio, right? And the one guy's always critical of every decision I make, right? And the other guy's trying to defend me, and the third guy in between is, like, either you know, the two angel and the demon. The third guy doesn't speak English, so I don't know what he's saying. Um, but, like, um, but we have those type of, like, on your own personal AM or FM radio station, depending on how you broadcast, right? Um, you have those thoughts that play in your head. Um, it, what What is maturity, though, is being able to interpret those thoughts that you have and, and figure out what is real and what is not. Um, and that comes with maturity. Um, so it's been proven in the psychological liter- literature, and I think, if we can be honest, it's a brute fact of life, um, that... Your emotions can inform your reality, but your reality and the way you interact with the way you interact with reality can inform your emotions. Let me give you an example. I used to have a job I hated, right? I worked at Spooky Bones Barbecue. I always told myself when I was 16, I'd work in food services for six months just to say I did it, right? I lasted eight and then I was, I was gone. I couldn't do it anymore. And I was talking to my um, counsel, not my counselor, but my mentor at the time. And he said, look, okay. Why don't you do this? I know you hate your job. I mean, I, I get sick to my stomach before I go into work. Like, it would affect how I interact with cut. I just hated that job, right? And he said, focus on two things. He said, focus on one thing that you love about your job. Because everyone can find one thing, right? And try to focus on two if you can. And have that focus going in to your workplace that next day, right? So I focused on two things. One, I had a coworker that I loved, not in like the love sense, but in the sense that she was hysterical, right? She was so funny. So when she was on the clock with me, I'm like, okay, we're going to laugh in the back room at least, right? And two, I loved surprising people with good customer service because I loved good customer service and it was lacking in this establishment, right? So like I wanted to surprise people with good customer service and I focused on those two things as I went into work and guess what? It was better. When I focused on the good things going into work, suddenly good things happen. So you see how the way you view reality can influence your emotions too? Um, So this this is a good quote. 
Happiness, maturity, and even enlightenment require rejecting the untruth of emotional reasoning and learning instead to question our feelings. So that's where maturity comes in. Again, it's not to totally discount it, but it shouldn't be the basis of, of how you feel. Because again, the way you approach something can influence your feelings as well. Okay? If you don't question your feelings, we will find reasons to believe our feelings. If you don't question your feelings, you will find reasons to believe our feelings. Because we are creatures of habit that want to be right. Right? We don't want to be challenged on our beliefs. We just want to be justified in them. That is the human condition. Um, we don't like admitting we're wrong. Um, and the fact is we can convince ourselves of literally almost anything. Um, so, and this is called a feedback loop. He calls this a feedback loop. Um, so he says the patients tended to get themselves caught in a feedback loop in which irrational negative beliefs cause powerful negative feelings, which in turn seem to drive patients' reasonings, motivating them to find evidence to support their negative beliefs. So it's just this negative feedback loop. And when people are stuck in that, gosh, it is so hard to pull people out of that. Honestly, especially teenagers, because they haven't learned how to deal with um, failure and negativity yet. Um, they're learning. If you can teach a teenager that to get out of that spiral, they are going to be light years ahead of their peers when it comes to other life skills. Okay? Um, so we seek out reasons to trust our emotions, even when it's irrational, which leads to the next lie. Uh, well, no, not the next lie. Um, but it leads to the bad decisions we plan in our lives. I'm not going to spend... I'll, I'll go over them quickly, right? Um, but we spent more time on this in Yak. So if you want a more breakdown list, these are the lies that we believe, okay? Um, these are the, what we call cognitive disorders that people have when it comes to why they believe what they believe. Um, and again, if you can, you can go back on the Yak series um, and look up this lie, trusting your emotions, and, and see a better breakdown of these. But we talked about these as a group, and everyone, every person in the world experiences some sort of this. So um, I'm quick at labeling um, other people's um, motives. Right? Like, I know that about myself, so I know I need to, to wrestle that in. Um, so emotional reasoning. So I'll go quick. I feel depressed, therefore I'm not a good softball player. Or I feel depressed, therefore no one wants to be friends with me. See how it's leading me to your emotions. Catastrophizing, we all know these words, right? Every, it's going to be awful. Like that person that always catastrophizes like every event. I can't go to prom because I'll just sit in the corner and no one will dance with me and talk to me. And I won't even like the food, right? Like it's those people like that catastrophize an, uh, an event or a potential event. Third is overgeneralizing. I always miss that line. So I'm probably an awful actor. Um, I'm an awful parent. So why even try? Um, dichotomous thinking. Everything is very black and white. Fifth is mind reading. Um, we talked about this in heavy detail because this is, this is this culture and dealing with the first and second self that we've talked about in weeks past. And that is we assign motive like crazy. Like we just assign motive to everybody. Um, and if you do that, assume you're wrong. Just stop. Like get it tattooed here. Stop assigning motive, right? Like you just need to, because if you do, you won't have a lot of friends. Um, it's just how it works. Six is labeling. I'm such a loser, so it's self-labeling, or that person's so fake, right? So I'm not even going to get the chance to get to know them. Seven is negative filtering. Um, you only look, a tendency to look at a negative of a situation. Eight is discounting positives. My spouse's gift for Valentine's Day isn't a big deal because that's what they're supposed to do, right? Discounting positives. Um, last on the list is blaming. This is putting all our problems on everyone else but ourselves. 
my parents cause all my problems. It's all my teacher's fault that I got that lousy grade. Sure. All right. Um, again, I bring up that list so you can check your heart. Um, and again, the smartphone helps us do all these things better. So we've talked about the last couple of weeks. It's so much easier to label when you don't have a face-to-face interaction. It's so much easier to mind read when you know your friend posts an Instagram photo, photo of your other friends and you're not there. And you immediately go, man, they didn't invite me. They no longer like me anymore and I'm not cool in their eyes, right? So we assign motive real quick. Um, or that family has it all together. They got all their you know, kids to take one photo where everyone's smiling at the same time, right? Like that's an amazing task, especially if you got any more than one child. And even one child, it's amazing if you can get them to smile at a photo at the same time you are, right? And so we, we label and we mind read. The photo helps us do that better. Um, Gosh. Okay. I'm going to touch on this briefly. Um, microaggression. Um, one of the natural outcomes of this type of thinking is the microaggression. Um, you might have heard this word. It's another concept creeped idea that appeared since I was in high school. Microaggression is a brief or commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental um, indignities, whether intentional or unintentional. That's the scary part. That communicate hostile derogatory, or negative racial slights or insults towards people of color. The term was first applied to people of color, but is now applied extremely more broadly. Um, Sexual orientation, ageism, um, pretty much anything you can think of can be microaggressed. Um, Now, I'm not denying that there's still inherent bias against people. No one would deny that, right? But really, the key to microaggression comes down to intent versus impact. And people that feel microaggressed only worry about the impact against them, and they don't ask what was the intent of the person, right? So Chuck bumps into somebody walking down the hall, right? Um, Let's say it's someone with, like, green hair, right? Um, He didn't mean to. He was was just focused on something else, and he didn't. Um, So he apologizes, and instead that other person feels microaggressed and said, the only reason you did that is because I had green hair, right? You consider me an outsider. And so, like, do you see what I mean? So it all has to do with the impact and not the intent. And this is written into student conduct codes at universities. Okay? So student conduct codes at universities have removed intent and put in impact. So it's only about how I'm impacting. The intent of the speaker or the intent of the person is completely removed. And professors are less likely to speak about, you know, hostile subjects potentially because they fear the impact it might have on their students, even if the intent is to educate. Because they feel like someone might be microaggressed. And they need a safe space. See Um, how it goes together? Um, The last one, because we got... Five minutes, and I kind of want to talk about it. So this is the state of the world today. We are convinced we are one of the lowest points of human history. That's what the the modern, you go on Twitter for five seconds, right? We're convinced we're at the lowest state of human history. Um, And we rarely look at the freedoms we do have. More people are free. More people are out of poverty on a global scale than have ever been in history. But according to some, we are a step away from the apocalypse. I mean, you turn on the news, I mean, we're about to, you know, something's going to blow up, Right. And that is exactly where this type of thinking leads, not necessarily to a global apocalypse, but a self that convinced that we're in one. 
Um, your emotions are not to be trusted, but we know the one who is. Um, it is when we are grounded in the word of God that this type of thinking can be placed where it should be, that, our neg- that we can navigate our emotions well. The gospel is freedom for this way of living. The gospel is freedom for this way of living. The third lie. Um, life is a battle between good people and evil people. This is where we're going to have a discussion. Okay. Um, I'm really hoping that's the other side of the building. Okay, we're good. Sorry, I heard the alarm and I'm like, great. Um, <laughs> we're all running out the back. And we get to talk about this because when I was about to like write down, I mean, this, this week was long. This is like a 30-minute talk, so I'm like, how can we discuss this in a way that is more discussion than anything else? And then um, the world delivered. Thank you, world. Um, so where have we seen this play out between life is a battle between good people and evil people and the two other lives that have been in play the last couple of weeks? Right? Um, I mean, this has been played out in the media perfectly, if you've paid attention at all, right? Um, and please don't hear this. I'm not justifying anyone's actions here, right? But we saw this played out. This idea that life is a battle between good people and evil people um, on Twitter and, and Fox and MSNBC and CNN and even the BBC was covering this stuff over in England, right? Um, and the reaction within 24 hours to 48 hours to a week later, you just saw this like swing pendulum back and forth. And this is the outcome of the culture, right? I did find it interesting that um, Bert Muller has this wonderful shirt that I tried to buy, but it was out. Um, but it was um, uh, <laughs> make Orwell fiction again, right? Um, which I just thought was funny if you've ever read George Orwell's 1984, which came out, you know, I'm, I was born in 85, so I've always been fascinated with it. Um, so to wear an improper expression on your face was itself a punishable offense. There was even a word for it in Newsweek, face crime. It was called. Um, and so that is today's world that we live in, right? To where... Um, if you, we have no clear idea what his intent was, right? We didn't even question his intent. We went, what was the impact? And how did it offend me? Um, so what do you think of it? I don't want to get too, we can go on a rabbit trail here, but how did you see these lies played out like this week with this incident? Who followed this incident? Who knows what I'm talking about? Hey, some people. Hey, the teenagers are like, I don't know. What well, I mean, the, the one side attacked the Native American later on because he gave the impression that he was a Vietnam veteran and he wasn't. He wasn't a Marine Corps. He was a refrigeration specialist. Mm-hmm. Never served in Vietnam or Vietnam area. Uh, I did see something this morning that that there was an apology offered to this young guy. I don't know who it was from. I didn't look at it. But. The diocese. The di- his, it's because it's Catholic school, right? His diocese issued an apology because they came out and condemned the kid within 24 hours. So the diocese offered an apology. Can you, can you give a summary? I mean, I know it's Yeah, yeah, so it's a great question. So the summary was that there was a school trip to Washington, D.C., they were waiting for their bus on the, um, the monument. The initial story was that these kids surrounded this Native American gentleman who was also protesting and 
Um, we're yelling things like build a wall um, and other absolute awful racial, um, like, whatevers. Like, I can't think of the word right now. I apologize. But just awful things, right? Um, and so, and they're wearing, you know, you can't see it here, but they're all wearing the Trump Make America Great Again hats, too. So the media, like, just jumped on this, right? And condemned these kids and um, the number of hashtags which were special to this um, cause were all over Instagram and Twitter um, and Facebook, right? And then more videos started to emerge, um, and they realized that black Israelites were yelling racial profanities at these kids, and the kids in return started doing school chants to unfilter them out. And then this man seemed to try to get involved in some way or another. And then he walked up. You actually have a video of him walking into the group. And then this encounter happens where he's chanting. And he just doesn't move, right? He smiles. Um, And everyone took that smile to mean you're a racist bigot. Instead of what he said, right? His intent in his letter was, I was just trying, like, what do I do in that situation? Like, I'm trying to diffuse the situation. So... I mean, you even see him trying to cut off some other guy who's saying something. He's like, no, don't say anything. Like, let him have his space. Um, And so he smiled. And so his intent that we can, we can't read into his mind, right? His his stated intent was that I was trying to be respectful and diffuse the situation. So I smiled at the man as he approached me and chanted to my face. But everyone initially read that intent as um, you hate everyone who is non-Catholic and non-white. And they also attacked the school. Oh, yeah. There was an article that um, a young guy, a, a gay who was a valedictorian, was not allowed to speak. Well, it, it was a different school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it said it was this school that these kids attended, but it was a different school. I mean, it was it so quickly put, uh, you know, non-factual or untruths into an argument or a situation. And think about it. If life is a battle between good people and evil people, we will use every possible motive we can to make the other side the devil. And the gospel is the ultimate leveling playing field, right? For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, It's where we can be vulnerable. It's where we can actually come alongside people that have different life choices and lifestyles and life experience than us. Because we're trying to empathize and understand them, right? So that we can both love Jesus better. Um, So I really do believe that the church has a great opportunity here to speak into the culture. Because a culture that believes that, again, life is a battle between good people and evil people, it puts everyone on the same playing field. And it doesn't say, come join me on the the really good team, right? It says, we are all in need of a savior. (laughs) We all need help. Here are my scars, Right? I'm so, I see that you have some scars too. I'm so sorry. How did those happen? Um, what have you learned in life? What are your life experiences? And, and seeing the gospel play out in that. Um, and so this is where I really feel like the church can really speak to the culture. Um, because the culture is on both sides of the political spectrum trying to divide us. To both sides of the political spectrum. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Um, but we get to step in and be like, We are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, and we all need a Savior.